you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. This show exists to help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's jump into today's episode. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. One of my favorite episodes of Creative Pep Talk of all time, and one of my most popular episodes of all time, is my interview with Lisa Congdon. And today, we have another interview with Lisa Congdon. She returns to the show. And uh, (laughs) I was super excited to have her back and have a conversation with her. Uh, I love Lisa. She exemplifies... I mean, she's not only... Uh, just a super lovely person um, to hang out with and talk with Uh, but she's also she also exemplifies almost every principle that we talk about on this podcast someone that slowly but surely uh, continues to make self-initiated work and grow her uh, abilities and the, the work that she's making right now is so gorgeous and uh, it's been amazing to watch uh, just the evolution and the, you know, the ever-changing, growing quality of her practice. And then on top of all that, not just being a phenomenal artist um, who's really inspiring that way, she's been super generous over the years sharing her tips and tricks and, and lessons and um, heart online through her blog and Instagram. And uh, she has a new book out called A Glorious Freedom. And it's it's older women leading extraordinary lives, and I think from uh, all the discussions I've had with Creative Pep Talk listeners, uh, it doesn't matter if you are an older woman. I feel like all of us. Uh, it matters if you are. I just mean it doesn't matter if you're listening to this episode and you're not. <laughs> uh, it'll still be relevant to you. If I know one thing, it feels like even the you know 18 year old that I talk to feels like they're behind nowadays. You know, if they're just getting started, and um, they're like, you know, the 12 year olds that were starting on Tumblr, they're like kicking my butt. Like everybody I know. Uh, you know, is inundated with all of this data and information and people seemingly crushing it online. And it makes us feel like, uh, why even bother? Why get started now? And I think uh, that this book was incredibly inspiring to me for uh, a whole mess of reasons that we talk about um, in the show. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And I know you're going to love this episode. Here it is. 
Uh, well, not quite yet. Go get go get this book, Glorious Freedom. Um, you can go find it through Lisa's site in the show notes, or I'll put an, a link in there. Um, and go check out Lisa everywhere online. Uh, you won't be disappointed. All right, here she is, my friend Lisa Congdon. You have a new gorgeous book called A Glorious Freedom. And I wondered, rather than me try to explain it, if you could just tell us what this book is about and why you wrote it. Well, the book is, uh, it's called, the full title is A Glorious Freedom, Older Women Leading Extraordinary Lives. So that says a little bit more about what it what it is and what it's about. The book yeah. is a collection of interviews with essays by and profiles of women between the ages of 40 and 100 who are sort of reinventing what it means to get older. Um, They are women uh, who have either reached the apex of their, or the book, I should say the book features women um, who have either reached the apex of their career later in life or didn't start doing what they became known for until they were much older or just Mm. older women who are in their 90s and still working, um, Mm. doing something that's rather unusual for somebody who's in their 80s or 90s. And so um, the book really talks about or tries to come from the perspective that for women in particular, and I think this is a sort of universal thing, but for women in particular, um, aging has been a very negative thing. So we are a a culture that values youth, AKA appearance. Um, As any of us get older, men and women, we, we lose things, we lose, um, you know, these characteristics that, um, made us youthful that, and therefore gave us value. Um, and that, you know, when you're over 40, you're over the hill, you, you're, you sort of culturally lose your value, um, or your, your potential for greatness has passed. Um, and, you know, so many women in particular have been, you know, sort of, uh, couching their own value in what they do for other people and often will keep from, making some amazing career move or being bold or risk-taking, um, you know, that they, they avoid doing those things in favor of, you know, uh, maintaining the status quo or taking care yeah. of others. And so the book is really about women who are kind of blasting all of that out of the water and who have, or some of whom were doing it many, many, or uh, hundreds of years ago. So it's mostly focuses on current women. Um, and the book came about because, I am a sort of self-described late bloomer. I um, had a career in education before I ever became an artist. I was a teacher and then I worked for an education nonprofit. I was working my way up in this nonprofit organization. um, And I took a painting class when I was in my 30s and fell in love with it. I was terrible. I was a terrible artist. What I did then looked zero like it does now. But it it literally moved something in me. And I was like, I want to do this. So never in a million years did I ever imagine it would become my career. But because I was having so much fun and it lit something um, alive in me, I continued to make art, both taking random classes here and there, um, 
and uh, and just doing stuff on my own. This was around the time that the internet was becoming a space for creative people to um, share their work, whether you were an amateur or a professional, similar to today, just yeah. far fewer people doing it. And yeah. I started uh, to um, gain a following. I had a blog and a, at the time, just a Flickr account. Um, so anyway, um, and then, you <laughs> know, to 15 years later, it's my career. Um, so by the time I, w this was in my thirties, by the time I was, um, in my late thirties, I started to take on some professional projects and then, um, quit my job when I was 40. Um, I turned 50 in January. So I'm, or in a, which is in a, like right now as we're recording in a couple of months and, uh, yeah. I, so I've been doing this professionally for 10 years and I've um, seen a lot of success. And what I realized is that m a lot of the attention around my success is the fact that I'm self-taught, that I figured this out without, you know, anyone telling me what to do as I came mm -hmm. from like outside of art school or outside of the art establishment and that I managed to sort of compete with people half my age who are fresh out of art school um, and build this really successful, um, relevant career. Um, and that I was inspiring other people who were second career folks um, or folks who were older. And, uh, yeah. and I decided to write a book about the topic um, because it was resonating so much. Man, so I, my brain is going to explode from the amount of questions that I want to <laughs> ask to follow up that. Uh, so, all right, I'm trying to figure out which one to go with, but I will say this first, that I, uh, you know, I never really thought about, I don't think I really considered deeply how, you know, men as they grow older culturally uh, are really, it's all up in a, in a yeah, way. Yeah, you're in revered. Terms of, mm -hmm. Yeah, not only uh, physically, that people seem to culturally think that men get better looking over time, mm -hmm. but also all of the all of our stories are these old wise men that have all these this wealth of knowledge, but not really equally mirrored uh, for for women uh, that are that are older. And I just think, man, that's that's so wild. And I also, as I was reading through your book. One of the things I realized that was such a massive shift for me, um, like I've always been uh, equal rights for men and women, and and but for me, I'm not a radical guy. I don't I don't like to. Uh, I don't think I'm a person that naturally likes to uh, ruffle feathers. I think like and I think of my older brother who's just like a. Uh, a guy who likes to speak his mind and kind of shake things up. I'm never, I've never been like that. Uh, but as I was reading this, I thought if I was a woman and I was the same person, I would be really radical because I feel like I would feel trapped as a woman. I would, because, because I feel so, uh, I'm so passionate about doing my mission or call or whatever it is and, and living my identity as a person. Uh, and I just kind of got a, pers a different flavor, uh, a different perspective of what it would be like to feel the same as I do now about my identity and what I, what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing and all that jazz. Um, but as a woman and just realizing that 
if I was, I would have to be way more radical, way more vocal, and way I would have to have increased my confidence by tenfold to uh, to live the type of life that I live now as a man. Right. Um, which just I don't know shifted a to- a big paradigm shift in my mind just from reading these stories. Um, so yeah, that 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 was incredible. Uh, so. <laughs> I guess that's all just a bunch of statements that just came to my mind. I couldn't help but share. Um, here's my follow up question to that. You kind of told us a little bit about why you went out to write this book. Uh, but I wonder what maybe happened to you through the experience of writing it that you didn't know was going to happen or how did writing it change you? Well, you know, I, I, First of all, when I started making the book, I put out a call um, because I I knew that there had to be other women who had similar experiences to me or even more profound experiences um, mm. to mine. And I had sort of followed along the stories of some more famous women who, you know, were older and kind of reaching new heights in their careers or athletic feats or whatever. And I had admired them, but I knew there had to be way more people than I knew. And in fact, there are lots of people out there I discovered who are known for one thing, but it also turns out that, you know, they're, uh, they didn't become known for that thing until they were much older and people that I didn't know about. And, um, and I also wanted to make sure that the book featured just regular people because in a sense, I'm not, I'm not a celebrity myself. So I'm just a regular person who, um, you know, I might have a, you know, relative to the average person, larger social media following, but I'm just like this regular person. Right. And I was like, there's gotta be other regular people out there who did some incredible things. And so I put out this call, but both for essays from writers, a, you know, who were willing to share some of their experience in getting older. And so part of the book isn't written by me. It's written by people that um, I either commissioned or who submitted essays that I accepted. But a big bulk of the book is just interviews with and profiles of women who were suggested to me by other people. And I put out this call on my blog and on all my social media channels, like, tell me who should go in this book. And of course, I, you know, in the end, like so many people were submitted that I couldn't even include them all. So the first thing that happened to me was just like being blown away by how this was resonating for people and how many suggestions people had of women who were really inspiring them. Um, and that, um, that this topic was like important, not just to women, but to men. I had so many men writing to me too. So that, that, that was the first thing. And I think as I began to research and write the book, um, you know, a lot has happened since I wrote the book in terms of feminism and uh, women speaking out about things yeah. that they that we have been silent about for for like for for eternity. Um, like yeah. this 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 point in our history is so uh, overwhelmingly significant, and it's uh, that I can't even. I have no idea where it's going, right? Because it's just so every single day stuff is happening around sexual harassment and um, sexual assault and alone, uh, not to mention so many other things. So, but at the time that I was writing the book uh, or researching the book, 
like this was the germs of this were starting to to really bubble up and um you know that people were calling it the year of the woman or the future is female right like we're hearing all of these things and all of these debates about feminism and white feminism and what is feminism and what does it mean to be a feminist and what does it mean to be a woman like and um so as i'm like putting the book together i'm realizing that I'm personally becoming more in touch with like how I've personally been held back and how um, I like, for example, I was raised in a family, you know, my mother is a self-identified feminist. I have had very progressive parents growing up and, uh, you know, on the surface. But like I also grew up in a time when women were supposed to um, be quiet and like you're supposed to work hard. Um, but not talk about yourself too much, not be, you know, um, conceited, like to be humble about your accomplishments, um, to not necessarily take risks, but to keep everything sort of in check, not to shine too much. So when I became really successful, I realized as I was writing this book that when I became really successful in the last few years, I was very, had a lot of shame about it. And that I didn't know that it was hard for me to like go to my parents' house for dinner and say, oh, you'll never believe what happened to me yesterday. Or guess what? This thing just happened that's really amazing in my career. And I felt like I, I was sort of uh, censoring myself around like talking about my accomplishments. And, um, and I realized so much of that was because that's how I was raised and how so many women of my generation, I've come to learn, um, were raised. And um, where men were like taught are taught more to be sort of um, more open about um, their accomplishments and um, talking about them and, and, you know, success is very um, much a part of like what you're supposed to be as a man. And that 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 has its own set of problems, (laughs) you know, for men. But um, and so. I was interviewing all these women about like, why was it that you didn't find, uh, didn't really come into yourself until you were older? And why was it that, you know, all these things happened? And so for me, significantly, I was like realizing that so many of the things they were talking about were also true for me. And I had been um, kind of uh, in denial about that for a long time, like thinking that I had had this really great childhood and being raised in this way and that actually part of the reason I didn't even become a creative person until later is that, um, I wasn't, that part of me was never encouraged. And so, um, in the way that it, you know, might've been, um, so I, that is all to say I had so many (laughs) self discoveries and I continue like just, uh, the other day I interviewed, I think she's one of the oldest women in the book, Betty Reed Soskin. She's the one, uh, the oldest park ranger in the United States. And, um, she comes across as this extremely confident, extremely self-aware woman. Um, she's extremely eloquent. She knows her history. She's lived for 96 years as a black woman in this country. And, um, and yet she talked about, she didn't really become Betty until her, you know, her father died and she, her, both of her husbands died, you know, like Mm -hmm. that there was still this, you look at this woman and you think she's always been powerful and dynamic, Yeah. but she hasn't. And she hasn't always felt that way. And that every woman has a story of feeling held back or feeling, um, 
or, or being insecure or not knowing who they are um, in some way. And, and I, so I could relate to all of that. And I think, uh, I, I think you hit on something really uh, profound of like the ability of the, the, these stories have to show you what you don't know. Like you're saying that there were these invisible boundaries that you ha having grown up in like a progressive feminist household, you didn't even realize the things that were holding you back or that you had to work through. And, you know, going through this process made all those invisible things show up. And I think for me, reading the book and what is just an amazing thing about making this book is that I am someone who I've never thought of myself as conventionally masculine. Like I am always, I've always been an artist. I've always been super goofy. I was a mama's boy. I don't like sports at all. Can't, you know, all the things you think of like yep. uh, conventionally masculine. So I've never, I never even thought there was a, uh, I don't know, a bone in my body that wasn't equal rights. Right. And, right. and, and, or, or I've always just connected to women. And I, so I've always just never, I never would have thought of that, but reading this book, uh, reading these stories created a new level of empathy in me that I didn't know was necessary. Like I was saying about being able to see it from their perspective made me realize that that, that me not being a radical person and just living my dream as I, as I am is a privilege. Like it was a privilege uh, for me to not be a radical person, to not be someone that's like uh, ruffling feathers. Like mm -hmm. me doing my thing was just natural for me. It, it was hard. It was hard work and I had to break through different things, but I never had to uh, explain why I wanted to be a success or or go make a name for what I was doing or justify and, it or, or justify for that it. matter hide it yeah yeah exactly and so I for me reading these stories in the same way that you were describing made a bunch of invisible things visible mm -hmm. uh and and that's kind of the power of the story and I think um although this book couldn't have been made um in the same way or have the same power if it wasn't about women uh, I also just found all these massive human parallels that were really speaking to me about my own journey. And one of the things I realized is that a lot of these were just cataloging these breakthrough moments for people. And I wondered if, as you were going through story through story, if you noticed any patterns or any circumstantial uh, ingredients that made things ripe for these people to have these personal breakthroughs, but both so that older people can have them, but also maybe so that some of the younger people don't have to wait until they're older to, to have, to have these personal breakthroughs. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, is that I mean, a coherent question? Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> this is a true story. I got a call or an email. Um, I want to say it was probably a year and a half ago now. I was working on the book when I got the email and I was contacted by a writer for Refinery29, which is a popular yeah. website. And to be honest with you, I don't know if this ever got published, but they were she was researching an article at the time about women in their 20s, I believe, um, who were worried that if they hadn't reached, quote, success by 30, mm -hmm. that they had 
you know, they had sort of missed their opportunity or missed the mark or that they were somehow a failure. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm totally summarizing here, but they wanted me to comment. And so I ended up, I think I interviewed, I did this interview, I ended up getting on the phone with this woman and, mm. um, and then I, I, I think the article, I don't, if it got published, it might've been in, in a different context, you know, how, writers get assignments. And <laughs> so I, I if, if somebody tries to Google this article and can't find it, I'm not sure it ever got published. But I did get the call and I did do the interview. And I think that um, they were interested in talking to me because I've been a pretty like strong voice um, about this very topic of like, reinventing yourself, because that's exactly what I did. And honestly, I'm, I'm just about to turn 50. And I'm like, God only knows what else I'm going to do next, like, I really don't yeah. know. Um, and so uh, it was shocking to me when I got the email and then talked to this writer that this was even a concern among young women. Mm. And yet, I the more I thought about it, I thought, well, yeah, when I was in my 20s, I, I wasn't a super success-driven person, but I definitely, I worked, I, I look back now and I say, yes, I continued to sort of like edge my way through my career path, right? And was always thinking about like, you know, uh, what that would look like next. And I think for a lot of women, um, less so now than maybe 20 years ago, another moniker of success is that you're married by the time you're 30 and mm. starting to family, right? So there's all of these ways that we measure our success when we're younger. And I began to realize at that moment that this book isn't just for women, you know, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who need to be inspired to go do that thing they've been thinking about for 30 yeah. years, but never done. Like it's for them for sure. But it's also to inspire younger women. And because um, I had sort of lost touch with the fact that younger women are, uh, are still fearing getting older and that to them yeah. turning 30 is old, you know, and, to, and I look back and I say, Oh, my God, you're so young, right? You have this whole life ahead of you. I didn't even start drawing and painting until I was 30, 31 or 32. Um, and uh, I had in my Seattle uh, book signing recently, I had a, a particularly large number of younger women and um, for whatever reason, and they were talking to me as I was signing their books um, about how much they need this right now. Like they need role models. They need to relax a little bit about like doing everything now and being, uh, being somebody now. And yet they also want to, um, they're using the book as inspiration for, um, for like pursuing your dreams now and not necessarily waiting yeah. until you're older. And so there's different ways that the book can inspire people, but of all ages. And, and that's, like super heartening to me because I think I told you another time that we, you know, I, when I was first conceiving of this book, I thought of it as a book for older women and yeah. it's so not. I think, I think it sounds like it gives, I, I think one of the things that causes people not to take risks, uh, which, which a lot, anybody pursuing their dreams or, or the thing they really want to do, uh, it always has this component of risk. And I feel like when you feel like, especially when you're young, that time is of the essence and you better get on with it and you better be on a path that's going to lead to something fruitful that causes you to end up, uh, you know, choosing something less than, or, or choosing the safe bet. And so I feel like for someone in their twenties or thirties or reading this book and saying, Hey, somebody, 
that's in their 50s decided to go to med medical school, like I can do whatever I want. I can try something and fail because I've got a lot of time uh, to to see this through and I can take some more risks. And so I think, uh, yeah, that just is inspiring on all sorts of levels. Yeah, I agree. So one of the things that uh, talking about that one of my favorite stories was Stephanie Young, yeah. who went to uh, medical school at 53 and is becoming a doctor at 60. Uh, I that story was um, just I don't know, just crushed me in, in such a good way. And I felt like it looked like this person that kind of the current that they were born in just natural current that sweeps you up from the minute that you land on earth will take you somewhere. And to me, her story was this thing that said, you can actually step out of that current if you want, and you can do that at any time. You can kind of step out of fate, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, I wondered if for you, when you started doing art at, uh, in your 30s, whether you felt like you were actively kind of playing with fate or like stepping out of the current that had been given to you or did it feel unnatural? Like what was that experience like definitely. for anybody that wants to try it? Yeah, definitely. Like um, I still to this day have imposter syndrome. It's not, well, and we didn't define that for people if you've never heard that term, but um, the, so um I still to this day sometimes have not as much as I used to, but have these, like, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to have this. Um, I just lucked into this. Like, I'm not really sure how this happened, but it wasn't because I'm talented. So mm. that's called imposter syndrome. And I certainly like, I probably had just as much of it, you know, like, who am I to be making art? Who am I to be taking an art class? Who am I, especially to be posting my art on the internet for people to look at? Like, and I do yeah. think what I have, what I learned is that uh, over the, over the years is that um, women in particular feel that way and um, many men as well. And that, um, you know, 90% of the population, if you're, basically if you're not a psychopath you have yeah. some level of imposter syndrome in life like when things are going well yeah. for you if you're not like you, an egomaniac yeah if you're not narcissist yeah that's right um yeah. and we all know who some of those people are um in the world yeah. right now and so if yeah. you're if you're not one of those people you have some level of like when you experience uh when you're diving into an area that is new for you is exciting and interesting as it might be for you you know, there might be some amount of questioning is like, um, especially if it's fun or interesting, like, do I really deserve to think this is, you know, to be having fun right now? Because I think in life, we're told that we need to suffer. And so or that if, unless we're suffering something, you know, that we're delusional, um, or that when we experience some level of success, or people appreciate what we're doing, that we somehow don't deserve it or that we're that we're lucky that it's not because um we've worked really hard or that we have some amount of talent and so that's been sort of true for me all all along like um i went to school to become an elementary school teacher um about seven years into it i went to work for an education nonprofit, and um and 
And so that was my comfort zone. That was what I did. That is what I went to school for. That is what I was trained to do. That was my career path. And so when I started like, not just taking art classes, but like got on the internet and started showing pictures of what I was making, there was part of me that was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? This is, you know, I was so scared. And I, I have so many fans now who are in a similar place and admit to me that they feel that way. And I was like, Oh, did you know I that that was me once, you know, yeah. 10 years ago. And I think that's important for people to hear. Because I think when you see people who are people you admire, whether they're a writer or an actress or a, um, you know, a, an activist or an artist, um, and they're they're doing great things in the world you imagine that they've all that they have this amount of like security and some amount of confidence and that they've always had that and yeah. we all feel insecure and that insecurity often is what often stops us from from pursuing things that deep down inside we want to at least try and yeah. i'm not saying everyone who tries to become a well-known illustrator is going to be successful yeah. You know, there are so many things that are factored into whether or not you Something have a successful out. career. And it's a mixture of drive and luck and who you know and chance and talent and experience and like so many different things. Um, yeah. And that formula has to be just right. But if I hadn't tried, I never would have known that I actually was going to have a formula that worked for me. So um, I think everyone sort of deserves to give that a chance. Um, and, yeah. and that is alone the sort of satisfaction. I think like Stephanie Young, though, so Stephanie Young was a magazine editor in New York and she just, her friend and she and her friend were out walking in Central Park one day and her friend said, what do you, you know, if you could do anything with your life what would you do if you hadn't weren't doing what you're doing now and she said oh, i'd be a doctor mm -hmm. and um you know turns out she's also been like writing about health stuff in her magazines and working for health magazines but like so it was already an interest of hers and then she just was like all of a sudden she was like wait why am i not doing this thing that i want to do i'm only you know 50 something years old so she goes off to medical school now was that seamless or easy for her no, like that was such a difficult process. No school in the United States would, would accept her. Um, yeah. No medical school because, you know, because of her age and, um, you know, there. And so she had to go to a school outside of the United States and like all these things were difficult for her. But despite that, the fact, the sort of intrinsic uh, satisfaction she got out of pursuing this thing, even though it was difficult, um, was what made the thing such a powerful experience for her. That story is uh, so good. There's a, uh, there's this other, there's this quote that really struck me in the book. Um, is it Alana Royce Smithkin? Yeah. Is that her name? Yeah. Uh, and it says there are different ways to be happy. If one way doesn't work, try another. I didn't understand this when I was younger. I never knew there were several doors in life. And, uh, I feel like you're someone who has experienced even, you know, starting out doing art and then going into illustration and then being kind of a writer. I feel like you've opened 
several different doors even after you made this dramatic change uh, in your 30s. And I wondered if you had any tips uh, that might feel a little bit less extreme than like just going to medical school. Yeah, quit your job and go to medical school, yeah. yeah. Uh, Like any tips of like, if someone's feeling like this door that they've entered is maybe not for them and they feel stuck in it, do you have any... Uh, like even when you were like doing your illustration thing and you wanted to explore some, or you were doing your art thing and wanted to go into illustration and blah, blah, blah. Um, if there are any piece of pieces of advice that you would give people, if they're curious about opening a different door, what are some like, what are some things that have worked for you when you wanted to like explore a new direction? Well, I think I like to think of myself um, as like, I think, it's helpful to think of yourself as like just starting off by doing research. Now there mm. <laughs> that can also turn into analysis paralysis, right? Where you do so much <laughs> research on the thing that you want to do, but then you never, but that's your excuse for not doing it because you're still really scared. So, I mean, the yeah. first step is really like, I think, I think it's actually um, somewhere Della Wells is this, this um, artist who's featured in the book um, who is, um, you know, she says something about that very thing, like that, you know, to, to sort of look into what it is you want to do and like go on studio visits or talk to people who do that thing. And, and I remember doing exactly that. I knew one person who was a professional illustrator and she's somebody that I had befriended in town. I lived in San Francisco at the time. And, uh, I remember, um, like literally asking her, like, what is it like to be an illustrator? What do you do? What is your schedule like? What can I expect? Um, and she was somebody I knew, so it wasn't like a formal, um, you know, interview. And now this was back in 2005. Now there are so many resources on the internet that you can read that tell you about what it's like to do a particular thing so many artists talking about their work and their daily process. Um, at the time, this wasn't necessarily the case. And so I had to sort of find real people to talk to. Now you don't even necessarily need to do that. So there's the research phase, like, is this something that I really want to pursue? Or am I romanticizing this thing that's actually not something I would want to do? Um, and then there's the like setting some goals, like, by this time, I'm going to email or I'm going to work on this aspect of my portfolio. And then I'm going to email these agents because I think I need an agent and, or maybe I'm not sure I do. So I'm going to research that, you know, like I'm a very pragmatic person and I dreamt really big about where I saw myself or what sounded exciting to me. I talk about this a lot in my book, Art Inc., which is this guide um, for becoming a successful artist. And um, like, you have to start with the dream of what you think you might want to do with your talents, um, creative talents or otherwise. And then you have to sort of backwards map to like research and then like figuring out how you're potentially going to get there. And, um, I started making goals and plans and, um, I knew this term analysis paralysis. And every time I found myself like just researching, but not taking action or doing the stuff that people recommended, I forced myself to do it. And, um, I talked a little bit a few minutes ago about this idea of feeling like an imposter or feeling scared or intimidated. And I felt all of those things, 
but maybe because I was older, I was able to sort of be like, okay, I feel this way, but I'm going to do it anyway. And this feels really scary, but like the worst thing that I can happen that can happen here is I'm going to get a rejection or nobody's going to like this photo that I post, right? Or this image that I've, something that I just made, you know, but I just kept doing it. And so I just, I literally, I showed up every day and did something that was going to, that I thought was going to help lead towards my goals. And, um, and that's what you got to do. It's like putting one foot in front of the other. It's no, it's no different than anything else in life. And, um, I think the getting from research to action and sort of like figuring out a way to work through to, to feel the fear and do it anyway is super important. Yeah. And actually, uh, I think that the action thing is so important and I, you know, I have worked with so many creative people that, you know, say they want to be a designer or an illustrator or a writer or a musician or whatever it is. And yet they're not actively, not even just, I'm not even just talking about marketing and pursuing it. I'm talking about, they're not making very much stuff at all. And uh, I'm always like, blown away when I'm like, you say you want to do that thing, but you're not doing it now with the time that you have. And I wonder, you know, I think that no one in, uh, no one on the internet can imagine a time when Lisa Congdon was not prolific as an artist, uh, making and making and making tons and tons of stuff. Uh, I don't think that anybody would believe that there was ever a time when that wasn't true. But I wondered if to anybody out there that feels like, they uh, they want to do something, but they can't seem to get to the action and just do it and do it and do it. Do you have any uh, tips or, or advice on how you became someone who was so active in making? Like you, you just seem to have such a uh, rhythm with that. Well, I do personally feel an enormous, and I'm lucky in this way, I feel an enormous amount of like satisfaction uh, in the act of making, like the, the showing of my work to the, to the public is a different love, a different kind of satisfaction. Um, but I making thing like I love making art and personally, after I've made something and worked through the, you and I early in a different conversation, we're talking about this maze that you enter into when you're in the creative process. Right. And when I'm in the maze, sometimes I want to like literally stab my eyes out or like give up or, and sometimes I do, I have to literally walk away for a day or whatever. I thought you were saying that sometimes I do literally stab my eyes. No, no, no. Thank God. No, (laughs) I've never taken it that far. Who knows? But um, yeah. So I, I think that there's like, you know, I'm even if, but I, I have enough experience to know that if I stick, if I stay in the maze, right, that I will get out, like that the thing will work itself out and it will be even better. Like in Art Inc., I talk a little, I call it the like, um, uh, I can't even remember the term I use, but the, I had this art teacher who was like basically talking about the bell curve for art, right? Like that, mm-hmm. or the, he called it the U curve, which is actually the, the opposite of a bell curve, right? Like that you yes, start out, right. when you start making something, your idea is fresh and in your head, it's going to look so beautiful. And you, you lay down the first layers and it's looking really good. And then you reach the bottom of the painting curve and like everything is messy and horrible and you just want to rip it up and throw it away. But often if you work through, and this is a little bit of a, an analogy it doesn't always you know 
the painting example isn't isn't doesn't apply to everybody but like this idea that you get to the messy part and if you can work through the messy part you can come up on the other side and the thing reaches a new level of depth and intensity that um it wouldn't have if you stayed on the other side of that that u curve right and um so i'm like i i have learned to embrace the bottom of the you know that curve and um i have enough experience because i forced myself in the beginning to work through it and i had enough like mentors telling me i needed to um to know what happens on the other side of it and um also the more you make art the easier it becomes let's yeah. just be clear um in the beginning everything feels hard it's like learning a new language you're not fluent um yes. you're not fluent in your materials you're not fluent like people People are like, for example, I just got an iPad Pro and I started using Procreate, which is this drawing app. And people are like, oh, you're making all these amazing things on, uh," and little do they know I'm using like literally one brush that I found that I like. And I don't really do much different than I do when I'm working with actual um, materials. Um, The reason I can use it and it looks like my work is because I've been drawing for 10 years. Like it's just a digital tool. Yeah, it took a little adjusting, but I've, I'm figuring it out. Like I'm already fluent in drawing, so learning the drawing app, drawing digitally is just like maybe Way one level up idea. for me. Where if you just started drawing and you're trying to draw digitally, it's going to look crappy and it's going to be complicated and hard. So sticking in the inside of the messiness is so important. And part of what I did to help myself with that um, was that, um, I gave myself a lot of projects like for this many days, I'm going to do this thing, or I um, would invent a body of work for myself. I still do this to this day. Um, and I, I focus a lot on personal work in addition to my professional work. My personal work leads to my professional work, my commercial work. Um, it's led to books. Um, and I force myself to make a certain amount of personal work. And usually that personal work has some kind of constraint attached to it. So I have sketchbooks where I only use the same three or four colors of paint. I have um, projects that I've done where I have supposed to paint or draw the same subject matter as many different ways as I can. Or, you know, so I'm giving myself challenges and I'm forcing myself to follow through. Do I post pictures of them every day? No. Do, you know, at this point in my career, I don't even do them every day but in the beginning I did I had daily projects and um, yes. I would tell the world that I was doing them so there was some level of accountability there too and I really recommend that people do that and that you follow through because the minute you are getting comfortable it means you're not pushing yourself in my opinion yeah. and actually it is like being in the maze or at the bottom of the u-curve where all of the learning and the magic ultimately happens right like any any experience like nothing good's happening that's right yeah but if you can work through that or around that in some way you'll get there eventually sometimes sooner than later sometimes for me the u-curve literally lasts uh 10 minutes and sometimes it's months and depending on what i'm working on and so and every artist including you andy who i talk to about these things and I Mm -hmm. write books about for artists. And so I am often like going on and on in conversation with people about these very topics is that every artist will tell you that it is the struggle that ultimately leads to greatness. And that if you're looking for everything to be fun and easy, 
and to always be in your creative flow, you will, A, you won't make very, um, your work won't be very developed. It won't, um, it won't, you won't end up finding your voice and you will, um, ultimately give up because so much of it isn't easy. And so like embracing the hard stuff, I think is like a great thing, not just for an art to, you know, as an artist, but as like a human being. And actually most of the women in the book that I profiled, um, will say some version of that. Like I, I learned to take all of like the hard stuff in my life and use it to make, to reinvent myself, you know? And I feel like, uh, for me personally, I've had to kind of uh, get distance from my, I don't know what it is, my animal brain, whatever the thing is. There's the, the, your base nature, when things get tricky or difficult, there's a part of you that instantly says, this is wrong. This must be wrong. <laughs> like I'm going the wrong way. Like as soon as it starts to feel tricky or it's scary or it's messy and you can't, it feels all, it, it ends up just feeling wrong. And I feel like there's a part of me like, you know, in the same way that with like meditation, you have to like notice it and, and, and be okay with it. In the same way I'll get in the middle, even like I find that understanding that you curve has made me more ambitious in the work that I make because I can now almost everything I start now, I know the first uh, three fourths of the process, it's not going to look good. Because I know it takes like four, there's a, you know, like a four part process to getting it to where I want it to go. And so now when I'm feeling all those feelings of like, this looks wrong, this could be a total disaster. This is difficult. So it must be bad. Yep. Uh, I just say that must be, I'm going somewhere interesting. And in the, in the few times that I'm not whatever, but I'm, I've, I've learned to, to just be comfortable with that discomfort, I think, uh, is, is super Yeah, I think important. that's a great way to put it, like getting comfortable with discomfort. I actually yes. started um, meditating about um, regularly, like every day. Yeah. I've meditated every day for like the last 220 days or something like that. And yeah. for me, the one thing meditation has taught me is just getting comfortable with the discomfort that comes with trying to be silent. Oh, good. And Maybe that's why I need to do this. I'm, I'm so antsy and like, I just like, I want to, I'm the guy, you, you know, on Darjeeling Limited, mm-hmm. uh, you've seen that? Yeah. yeah. Like I'm the guy at the beginning, they're all the brothers that are like smoking and popping pills and eating food and doing all that. I don't have any drug problems at this stage of my life. I don't, <laughs> and I don't, I'm not a smoker. I was when I was younger, but my nature is, to just like scratch that itch of like, let's do stuff. I want to eat and drink and do things and draw and do a billion things. And I do think like, man, I could use to get just more. Well, I mean, all of that is like, yeah, it's a form of distraction from the itch. Um, We all do it. Like even those of us who meditate every day. Um, But it's this idea that, and I think I figured this out before I started. I, I know I figured this out before I started meditating, although meditating is really sort of like brought it to the surface. But this idea that like deep, that, that so much of, um, although some people, I was going to say so, so much of why we give up on, um, sort of the, or we, we stop the creative process is because it's uncomfortable, right? We don't want to be in this place of something not looking right or whatever. And, um, but I also think that there are people who, uh, work really hard at making stuff, um, and, um, use art as a, form of like distraction um Mm. 
And I certainly am guilty of that too. Like I am such an obsessive drawer that um, I can barely watch a television program without my sketchbook in front of me. And oftentimes my wife is like, can we just watch television? Like, but I I realize it's like doing two or three things. Like that's my, I know. And it makes me super productive. As you said, there isn't a time in my history when I haven't been super prolific. Um, And, but what I'm learning also is that turning that off and then forcing myself not to make art actually causes me to, if I allow it, um, to go into a positive direction, like I get filled with ideas for what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're so busy drawing all the time, you can't like f- refill your creative well. Um, yes. It's just like anything else. So um, that's you end up making. Uh, I've seen, you know, in my own life, what ends up happening is it's kind of this thing where you you're making your whole life is about making art. So your your art is about your life, which is about making art. So your art becomes about making art, about making art, about making art. Yeah. And the cyclical thing that just becomes not interesting to anybody uh, other than maybe those obsessive art people, but you're not filling up the well with any life experience or actually, yeah, going through things. All you have to draw on is drawing. Uh, and it just becomes kind of cyclical and, and not very human. Right, and uh, I also think your yeah. work is just not going to be as strong. Like I find yeah. that when I do when I finally started forcing myself to take breaks, which I've done in the last year, pretty, pretty religiously. Um, yeah. I've obviously made a lot of changes in the last year with meditation. And like, I'm obviously focused on this idea of just getting comfortable with like space and space around things. And, um, because what I found was that the drawing all of the time, my work wasn't is original. It wasn't very original anymore or wasn't kind of mm-hmm. unique or different or growing or changing. It's like, you have to force yourself to, to show up and do the thing all of the time because that's how your work gets better. But you also have yeah. to have enough space around it that you can sort of refill, refuel yourself creatively, get new ideas and, and rest and take care of yourself. And like, balancing those two things of like work and rest is very hard, um, I think, for a lot of creative people. And we're, we, we're struggling on one end or the other. And some people get so afraid of um, if I if I stop working or drawing obsessively, that somehow my career will be jinxed. Um, if I mm-hmm. stop putting new, you know, trying to make new, force new ideas and new things to happen, and um, oh gosh, it just gets like it's. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I just sort of think I live inside of that world of always trying to figure out like what is the right amount of discipline yeah. versus <laughs> what is the right amount of like space that I need to take to make myself feel the happiest and the most creatively fulfilled and also the most productive. It's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And I think, uh, it's just, I love that idea of like learning a foreign language and how at first it's really awkward, but eventually once you're really into it, you can get lost in conversation. And I think art is like that completely. Like finding that discipline, uh, early on is so awkward and it feels like you're stretching yourself and forcing it and all that kind of stuff when you're trying to be someone who has discipline and makes lots of stuff. But then I think eventually, at least for me, you do get lost in conversation. For me, it's like, I can't imagine not making tons of stuff because it, it is a, it's even become like a mental health meditation of like, Mm -hmm just making stuff makes me feel better and all of that stuff. But at some point 
you, you have you've lost things to say in the conversation and you've got to go you've got to go away it's like making trying to you've only got like five ingredients and there's only so many different combinations of those ingredients and the, the meals are need to if they're going to get interesting you're going to have to go out there and get some more fresh input to throw into your stuff and that i think that's where i'm at struggling of like knowing i think you get it's it's so hard to get that momentum going and get into that discipline and that there's a fear that comes that says i don't know like well if i get out if I, of it, yeah. Yeah, if I get off the hamster wheel am i going to be able to get back on yep and totally. I'm here to assure you, you will be able to. Um, <laughs> I need to do it. I, I'm so It's not as big of a deal as you, as we think it's yeah. going to be. My brain is just busy on my business and art and all that stuff that I, it's so hard for me to switch that off. Um, yeah. And I, and one other thing I just highlight that you said that I think is really, really key, especially early on when you're like, you don't know if any of this work or discipline is going to pay off. Uh, is switching the reward from the payoff to the work. And, you know, you said that you just get so much enjoyment from the work, let alone putting it out there in the world and, and the response and the payoff that it gets financially or, you know, whatever. Um, if you can switch your focus on enjoying making stuff, then that's a way easier to get the ball rolling in, in that discipline. Yes. Yes, that's awesome. Okay, so this is uh, this has been fantastic. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but um, one last question. This is a this is a big uh, putting you on the spot one. Um, uh. there, there's that that uh, story that we talked about. Stephanie Young. She talked about how uh, her friend had asked her if time and money weren't a factor. Uh, what she would want to be doing. And I wonder, you know, you've made so many big shifts already. I wonder uh, at this point in your life, if there are any other things that you're interested in pursuing. I can't imagine not being an artist. Like yeah. that. now that I've sort of figured that out and I get so much joy and satisfaction out of it. Um, but I, one aspect of my career that I've never um, fully been able to pursue or chosen not to pursue, I guess I, I should say, um, is like just making fine art. Um, mm. So I started, you, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but in case your listeners don't know, I started off as a fine artist, like I was self-taught, yeah. but I didn't have any idea even what an illustrator did. So I was like making work and I had a few shows, um, both group shows and galleries. And I was like showing in some smaller spaces in San Francisco where I used to live. And I was, you know, didn't, I started to get some press, um, pretty early on. And actually that sort of led to illustration because somebody from Chronicle books, who's now like my biggest publisher and client came, came to one of my art shows and, uh, you know, was like, who is this person? we need to work with her. Yeah. And, um, I like basically got one of my first illustration commissions from, from that. But, mm. um, I really love, like I have a painting studio that's separate from my illustration studio. Cause my illustration studio is super small and to make paintings, big paintings and yeah. to, like make a body of work, you need a space. And so I, I rented this other space and I'm starting to force myself to go there more frequently because I do actually have my first solo exhibition since major solo exhibition Congrats. since 2011. Um, awesome. I used to work with a gallery in San Francisco and I had a big 
show in 2011. And I haven't, I've had been in small shows and had very small shows since then. But um, this is my first major exhibition. It's, a, it's affiliated with this, this residency in Southern mm-hmm. California. And um, I love going and painting and working on big paintings. And so much of what I do is, while it may start by hand, it gets scanned and it turns into something else. Like that's what illustration is. You're making artwork that goes in a book or in a magazine or adorns something, whether it's online or in print. And I love that work so much, but I also love making this tangible original artwork that people can hang in their homes or that hangs in galleries. And I, because I actually was making a living doing the other kind of work, plus teaching and speaking, all those other things, my fine art practice is really like fell to the wayside and I'm really trying to enhance that. And when you, if somebody were to say like if in five years, if you could dream of doing anything all the time, it would be just doing that full time because I feel like that could be, that would be such a luxury if I could get to the place financially where I could even take a year to just go to that painting studio, not twice a week for half a day, but like, and try to like get as much done in that period of time as I could, but to have a luxury to just go paint, all of the time um, and not worry about commercial projects or publishing projects. And I know that time is going to happen. And I feel like that's what I haven't done yet. And I feel like because if you don't spend a ton of time doing that thing, you never know how good at it you can um, get or where it's going to lead you creatively. And I feel like I have never done fine art or my own personal work um, enough to know what potential it has. Mm. And so that's what I feel like if time or money were no object, I would be doing because, um, I have so much curiosity about where that could go. I think I do strong work with, in what little time I have, um, in that realm, but I feel like there's so much untapped potential and, uh, I would love to explore that someday. All right. That is, Fantastic. I have just one more thing. And it is uh, for anybody out there that feels like, uh, you know, men or women who feel like they're too old to do what they really want to do. Is there any one thing that you want to say to them? Um. Yeah, the just I, um, Debbie Millman, who, uh, is sort of like a heroine in our community. And if yeah. you don't know who she is, um, look her up. She's also an interviewee in my book. She's a and designer. She's been and, on this podcast. As yes. Well. And she has her own before. podcast called design matters. And she's really a phenomenal woman. And she gives this piece of advice that I will, that I will take the opportunity to echo right now, which is like, if you find yourself asking yourself those kinds of questions like, or, or making those kinds of statements to yourself that you really need, owe it to yourself to unpack them by questioning them. Why is it you feel that way? What And what it really ultimately comes down to is more, more times than not is that you're scared. Um, and then really unpacking why you're scared and what is the worst thing that's going to happen. And really like uncovering the layers that um, that accompany these beliefs we have about getting older and why it limits us. Um, I would also encourage people to buy my book and get inspired by some yes. of the stories in there. There's some really phenomenal people who just said, fuck it, <laughs> excuse yeah. my French, um, you know, I'm going to try yeah. this thing. And they really ended up doing phenomenal things. Um, or, you know, even though, as I said earlier, like in the case of Stephanie and a few other people in the book, 
it's certainly like not been easy, but they, the satisfaction they've gotten from pursuing this thing that they've held as a dream their whole life, but never pursued is, is like priceless to them. So, um, there are so many examples of people out there who are doing really people in my book and, and then many more I've discovered since then. And, um, and I think having people that you look up to as role models or who are, who you can say, okay, all these people did it. I can do it too. Is, is also really important. It makes you feel less alone. Yeah, man, that's so good. And I, I've even in my own life, I remember one in particular conversation I had with somebody who was kind of stuck in a dead end job and just said, just the power of stopping and saying, Hey, what is it that you really want to do and what's in the way? And how that one conversation led to them quitting the job, get, getting, going back to school and in a matter of like three years, completely changing their path. And so I think you're completely right to just say, give space to those questions that, that are nagging you and just stop for a minute and say, why are they nagging me? And, That's right. you know, let, let's just, and what's in the way? What's really in the way rather than just this uh, ambiguous fear of it's too late or, or it just couldn't happen? Like, what's the truth? What are the real things? And then see, are those obstacles that I could actually... Uh, get around. I think that that is, um, yeah, just infinitely powerful. So yes. thank you. Yes. And, amen. <laughs> yes. And, and those stories will definitely in this book, go get the book. Those stories are just these testimonials that stack up in it'll, as you read them, your hope will grow because watching all these people do these incredible things at times in your life where you would think it was impossible will give you all of the hope and faith you need to make stuff happen. Um, so go check it out. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for doing this. This was fantastic. My pleasure as always. Lisa, thank you for being on the show again. Uh, I hope this is uh, a new pattern that we're starting because I think what you have to say and what you bring uh, is so valuable to Creative Pep Talk listeners and uh, you just fit so well on the show. So thanks for doing that again. I'm looking forward to hanging out next time we cross paths at a conference or what have you. Uh, Guys, go check out A Glorious Freedom. It's a really gorgeously illustrated book and incredibly written and there are so many inspiring stories in there uh you know like i said when i picked it up i didn't know if it would be relevant to me because it's about older women and i'm neither of those things uh and i was i was blown away by how inspiring it was to me for all kinds of reasons um you're gonna love the book on your shelf it's gonna look gorgeous up there and uh you're gonna love it in your hands go check it out glorious freedom all right Guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I think we're going to do an episode on social media that uh, is kind of a different take. I've been thinking a lot about that jazz. Um, We'll see. And uh, and thanks for listening. If you love Creative Pep Talk and it's had an impact on your creative career, there are a few ways you can support the show. You can review the show on iTunes. That helps, uh, helps lots of people see it. Back the podcast financially at patreon.com slash creative pep talk or get some creative pep talk merch on creative slash shop you can also access the first hundred episodes of the show and stay up to date with new shows by signing up to the newsletter on creative all right thank you guys so much hey thanks to yoni wolf and the band y for our theme music thanks to nate utesh and the band metavari for all the other tunes Thanks to Alex Sugg for the other other tunes. 
and, uh, and for editing the show. And thanks to all of you guys for listening. Until next week, I hope this keeps you pepped out of your socks. I hope your socks are blown all the way off in the, with this episode and they stay blown off until uh, we meet again. All right, stay pepped up. <laughs>